Hello, everyone. I'm joined today in an amazing edition of True Conversations podcast by the brilliant Dr. Anna Lemke. Dr. Lemke is a world-renowned addiction specialist and psychiatrist at Stanford University School of Medicine. She serves as the medical director of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic and is a leading expert in the field of addiction medicine. She is the author of Dopamination, which we'll be discussing now, Finding Balance in an Age of Indulgence. And as I mentioned to Dr. Lemke before starting recording, her book just made me explode with questions, with curiosity about our relationship with dopamine, with indulgence in an age of how to find balance in an age of indulgence and more. So thank you for joining me, Dr. Lemke. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And I wanted to, to start off with your own trajectory. What led you to dive deep into the mechanisms of addiction and how our brain responds to several substances? I was not initially going to treat patients with addiction. In fact, that was something that I was veering away from for a couple of reasons. I hadn't learned much or anything in medical school or residency about how to treat people uh, for addiction problems. Um, I had been taught to view it as a social problem, not a medical problem. Um, and then also I had uh, some of my own kind of negative countertransference. My, my, my father was a high-functioning alcoholic. My uncle, his brother, died of alcoholism. So there was some kind of, you know, sort, sort of an aversion to, to dealing with those problems uh, because they're too close to home. Uh, but I had a, an experience with a patient very early on in my career where I was treating her for depression and um, we were meeting for psychotherapy. I was prescribing a medication and she kept nodding off in the sessions. And I sort of you know, said, well, wh why do you think you're so sleepy? She said, I really don't know. I thought, well, maybe it's a side effect of the Paxil. I was going down this rabbit hole of her being, you know, um, having like a genetic mutation in her 2D6 enzymes, which metabolize Paxil. After about eight months of seeing her out of the blue, I got a call from her brother who said she's been in a rollover car accident. I said, oh, that's terrible. What happened? He said, she's been using again. I said, using? Using what? He said, using heroin. Isn't that what you've been treating her for? And there was this long, awkward pause because I had no idea that she'd been using heroin. And I had never once asked her about drugs or alcohol or anything related to addiction. She hadn't volunteered the information, but that's also not her job. You know, it's my job as as the doctor to get that information. So that was kind of a realization for me that, oh, wow, like I'm a bad psychiatrist. Uh, you know, I'm I'm actually harming people through my ignorance. And so that was more than 20 years ago now. And so I decided then to kind of shift my focus. And what I discovered was that I really enjoyed uh, treating addiction, that people with addiction are really these marvelous people who don't just get you know, a little bit better when they get into recovery, they get so much better. And they're such interesting, tenacious, uh, you know, hardworking people when they're not, you know, channeling the, that energy into using. So um, it's been a really rewarding, you know, professionally rewarding career. And then, of course, there's been an explosion in neuroscience in addiction in the past 50 to 75 years. So that's been really exciting, too. Wow. And like you say, it's When it's really close to home, it becomes uh, like a personal endeavor and a passion that you want to see more people realize their potential and also find answers to many questions that happen around this particular challenge that many face. And I'm very interested to know 
you know, Dr. Lemke, how would you explain addiction to someone who does, does not know anything about it? Mm. Yeah, I really like that question because um, it took me, you know, quite a, quite a while to understand phenomenologically what, what people were going through. Um, and I, I think I came to understand that through talking to patients, but also ultimately through my own sort of uh, very... Uh, let's say modest addiction that I developed to romance novels, which I which I talk about in the book. That was really an eye opener too. Once I saw it for what it was, but I, I think you know to, the, the definition of addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. We base it on phenomenology, which is to say characteristic patterns of behaviors. There are no brain scans or blood tests to determine whether somebody is addicted. Um, and the, and the classic pattern is based on the four C's, control, compulsion, craving, and consequences. So when people have out of control use using more than, than planned or intended compulsive use, there's a level of uh, automaticity, um, kind of even outside of conscious awareness in terms of their use. Um, craving can be f- physiologic, uh, you know, a uh, state of uh, hyperarousal, sweating, stomach aches, uh, you know, thinking about using or just intrusive, repetitive, intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. Um, and feeling like the only thing, the only way to get rid of that craving is to use. And then consequences is sort of the, the sine qua non of addiction, that continued compulsive use despite consequences. And people don't always see those consequences as they're happening. Um, so that's kind of, you know, when we think diagnostically, we use the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, and those are the criteria that we use. And the more criteria someone meets, the the more addicted they are. We have mild, moderate, and severe um, sort of categories for, for addiction. But I think to really deeply understand addiction... Um, yeah, you almost have to come at it at another angle. One of the way, one of the things I sometimes say, just imagine you had this incredible itch, and everybody's been there, um, and you know, at some point or another in their lives, where they just had this overwhelming itch. They told themselves they weren't going to scratch it, and maybe they could go for an hour, maybe they could even go for two hours, uh, maybe they could even go the whole day. But if they managed to make it through the whole day, they would probably scratch that itch in the middle of the night while they were asleep. That's pretty similar to severe addiction. It, it, it sort of takes over the brain. And you can use your willpower to an extent to resist the urge, but at some point you, you just exhaust willpower. And, and that's why it's such a difficult uh, you know, problem because people can really want to stop using and yet find that they're unable to do that. Now, having said that, people should be really hopeful because we do have good treatments um, for addiction, biological, psychological, social interventions that we know work when people you know accept treatment or actively engage in recovery programs but it's it's hard work and it really has to be like the center of your life for a period of time long enough to change the brain absolutely yeah thank you for for your answer and in your book in dopamine nation you also shed a light on you know how your own experience you know with romance novels made you realize how addiction can be tackled in so many different ways and also i appreciated the fact that you share some of the your patients experiences and how they were able to overcome very difficult challenges very uh, difficult times that many people wouldn't be able to overcome but your expertise and also your perspective on how to solve them really allowed them to overcome them and you touch on so many ideas right now and one of those is 
you know, it's related to one of the quotes I took from Dopamine Nation, which is, any behavior that leads to an increase in dopamine has the potential to be exploited. And it made me think because one of the most, my biggest confusion has been related with dopamine. And if we want, after I I ask the question, we maybe we can define what dopamine really is and what's that our biggest misconception on it. But I've been thinking on, in an evolutionary terms, you know, this uh, brain puzzles, these brain connections and how dopamine rewards certain behaviors are based on our survival and keeping us alive. And the biggest confusion I had with dopamine and until now is our behaviors now and our addictive uh, conditions get us very far away from survival and our brain continues to crave them. So this this disconnection between, you know, dopamine trying to make us survive, but at the same time making us dig, dig a deeper hole. That's the biggest confusion. So my question is threefold. What is <laughs> dopamine? <laughs> yeah. The evolutionary process of why this gets hijacked and okay. the biggest misconceptions on it. Okay. I'll try to answer your question too, which I think was was maybe the fourth thing that you that <laughs> folded in there or the source of your confusion. So dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brain. Um, it has different purposes, but one of its most important role is in the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. There's a specific pathway in the brain that has been identified in the last 100 years called the reward circuit. It consists broadly of the prefrontal cortex, nucleus accumbens, ventral tegmental area. And there are lots of dopamine releasing neurons in that circuit. When we experience something that from an evolutionary perspective, uh, we as an organism should pay attention to or do more of or explore further. Uh, the way that our uh, brain gets us to do that is to release dopamine in this reward pathway, which feels good. We are reflexively designed to approach pleasure and avoid pain. The more dopamine that's released in that reward pathway and the faster it's released, the more likely that substance or behavior is to be reinforcing. That is the more likely it is to feel good and to be something that we want to repeat. Now it's important to, so one of the misconceptions about dopamine is that it's just part of, you know, getting high or feeling pleasure. And that's, you know, that would be an oversimplification because dopamine is also very stimulated by novelty, things that are new in the environment, even if they're not necessarily pleasurable. It's our, it's a neurotransmitter that says, pay attention to what's going on right now. And of course, the internet, for example, exploits that wonderfully by co continually suggesting to us through AI algorithms that have learned us, you know, what we've liked before, but with a slight novel twist to it. And that engages this treasure seeking function that has us uh, looking and looking and looking. Um, the other thing is that dopamine, another uh, misunderstanding related to that is that dopamine can also be released in response to incredibly painful stimuli. So for example, if you expose a rodent to a very painful foot shock and then slice open its brain, you will see the same kind of arborization in dopamine releasing neurons in the reward pathway as you see with a single injection of cocaine. And then another uh, interesting piece uh, about dopamine is that um, uh, dopamine is also um, very important, not just to the experience of pleasure or novelty, but also to motivation. 
So for example, if you engineer a rat to have no dopamine receptors in the reward pathway, and then you give that rat some food by putting the food right in its mouth, it will eat that food and seem to get pleasure from the food. But if you put that food, you know, a body length away, the rat will starve to death. In other words, without dopamine, there's no motivation to go and seek out those rewards, even if we can experience uh, some uh, intrinsic benefit from the rewards such that we would want to eat, but we were not willing to do the work. And, and one of the ways that uh, neuroscientists measure how addicted an animal has become is by seeing how hard that animal is willing to work in order to get a reward. So in some ways, you know, a measure of dopamine is how motivated, how much motivation does it elicit uh, in the organism? Wow. That is a very, very great answer. And I think I didn't answer your question, though. I, I realize, uh, should I try to answer your your question? Yes. So I think your, your, your question was something along the lines of, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to answer a question that you don't have. But I think you were saying that if dopamine is so important for our survival, why is it that getting addicted isn't uh, supportive of survival. Was that was that the question? Yeah, similar. It's the, the, the confusion arises when you know I keep thinking our ancestors hundreds of thousands of years ago. You know the the reward secretaries were still there, but they would reward something else. You know, an experience of some something completely opposite, which is quote unquote healthy. You know, discovering a new place to live or a new food source. All of those, and then with the rise of I want to get into that topic as well, market forces and how they were hijacked our reward secretaries. They started to stop rewarding quote-unquote healthy uh, activities or rather they were turning to this idea of continuing to rather not... So in, let, let's put an example, so amphetamine use. That's not a, use, a, a healthy use, and that leads us out of our survival. That ma makes us further away of being healthy. But our dopamine levels increase 200%, like you're arguing dopamination. So that, that's the confusion. Why would a harmful substance hijack a circuitry that is built evolutionarily to make us survive? Right. Okay. So that's where the whole process of neuroadaptation is so important, right? Because uh, one of the overriding functions in our brain and for all living organisms is to return to baseline. And we're always releasing dopamine at a tonic baseline level, kind of like a heartbeat. Okay. Then we do something reinforcing or rewarding that really increases dopamine firing temporarily, but we always want to get back down to baseline firing. And the way that our brains do that is first by decreasing dopamine firing an equal and opposite amount. So we go into a dopamine deficit state, and then we go back up to baseline. And you might ask, well, why would mother nature make us go into this little mini dopamine deficit state after we get a little bit high? It's a very smart uh, mechanism if you consider the fact that for most of human existence, we've lived in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger, such that the only way to survive 
would be if things that were pleasurable were only briefly pleasurable, followed by pain, which would then create the motivation to keep looking for more of whatever that was. So we are the eternal seekers. We have been shaped by millions of years of evolution and this homeostatic re-regulating pleasure pain pathway in order to continue to look for more and more and more and never be satisfied with what we have. Now you've got the scientific revolution, you've got technology, you've got an incredible worldwide supply chain, you've got agricultural innovation where we can make grow plants faster and more potent forms, you've got drugs that didn't exist before, like the internet in all its various forms. And now all of a sudden, we have this what really what I call the paradox of plenty, where we're surrounded by so many highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors that we're basically, it's like a fire hose of dopamine in our reward pathway, way more than these little brains of ours were ever evolved to handle. And so in response to the way too potent drugs and too much of them, we're essentially going into this profound and chronic dopamine deficit state. And that, of course, is very bad for us, right? That's, that's That feels like depression, anxiety, suicidal thinking, uh, the crave, the constant cravings of, of, of addiction, uh, you know, restlessness, unhappiness, nihilism, whatever, you name it. So, so that's what happens there. It's, it's, our brains really haven't changed in terms of the fundamental mechanism. What's changed is the, the world that we live in, the world that we have essentially created. And now what you have is this incredible mismatch between what was a very effective a mechanism for processing pleasure and pain, which now in the modern world becomes a liability. Does that make sense? Wow, yeah, a lot. And I really like the idea that you say we've, it's the biggest paradox listening to you and also reading Dopamination was that we live in arguably the most abundant times on our existence. Right. However, we feel we're empty and you say, quote unquote, we're devouring ourselves, literally. And that, that's like the biggest paradox of it all is how to navigate a world of abundance health in a healthy way while our brains catch up with what's happening around us, which is a very difficult idea, especially so when all of the market forces are pushing us to crave more and more pleasure and even more potent drugs. Because like you say in Dopamination, the way that our grandfathers used to try wasn't at all the same with the, we're taking now this marijuana it's not the same and of course our technology our social media it's just overriding all of these systems so i want to get into that idea more more in depth the idea of you know these market forces really shaping how we uh, relate with addiction so there's this idea that we continue to expand on prosperity, but like you argue, more people feel depressed. So how can we navigate more this concept of abundance in a healthier way? And why do you think these market forces are appealing so much to these circuitries and we're being blind to that consequence? Okay, well, I'll take the second second one, one first, the one about, you know, how is it that we're blind to what's happening to us? For, you know, 
we, again, we are reflexively wired over millions of years of evolution to approach pleasure and avoid pain. We, we almost can't not do that because it is what has kept us alive. So when we live in this world of plenty where almost all human substances and behaviors from the food we eat to the cars we drive to, uh, you know, the way that we work uh, have become drugified in some way, what the, the problem is that we are incrementally in small ways, day after day, basically resetting our hedonic threshold. So remember what happens with repeated stimulation of that reward pathway is that in order to compensate for too much dopamine, we start to downregulate our own dopamine production and transmission. We involute our dopamine receptors in the reward pathway. We essentially end up in this chronic dopamine deficit state, but we don't see it happening as it's happening, right? And I talk about in the book as I got addicted to romance novels, like it started with an innocent vampire, you know, the Twilight Saga, and then that got me to read more vampire romance novels than I was reading werewolf romance novels and necromancer romance novels. And then I was reading, you know, ever more potent forms of erotica. Um, and then I couldn't even finish the book. I would just read it till the climax, you know, pun intended. And then I would put that down and I would go to the next thing, just like my patients addicted to, you know, heroin or opioids start out with like white China and end up, you know, smoking or injecting black tar heroin that they get from people they don't have any idea uh, our safe sources, you know, on on the streets, you know, San Francisco. So this kind of progression where we we our earlier selves, if we could see our future selves, we would be horrified. But the way it happens slowly and incrementally over time, we don't we don't see it happening. Um, in order, you know, what to do about it, I think what to do about it comes down to having a fundamental understanding of how we're changing our brains by exposing our brains to these highly reinforcing drugs and behaviors in the way that I talk about in the book with this pleasure pain balance and this dopamine deficit state. And then also looking to people in recovery from severe addictions as modern day prophets, because those are people who have had to figure this out in order to overcome and survive their severe addictions. So they're wonderful models for the rest of us who may not be as vulnerable to addiction, but you know, if you if you own a smartphone, you're addicted in some way, or you can at least relate to that phenomenon in, in the modern age. So what to do about it is essentially it begins with a period of fasting or um, you know, withdrawal and abstinence from our drug of choice long enough to let those reward pathways reset themselves such that we can return back to baseline healthy levels of dopamine firing. And on average, that takes about four weeks of abstinence. Now, that's not something that um, you know, I'm recommending that people do if they're at risk for life-threatening withdrawal from alcohol or benzos or opioids, or if they've tried repeatedly to stop on their own and were not able to, then you need, you know, you need an addiction medicine specialist, or maybe you need to go to rehab or a partial program. Maybe you need to have medically monitored detox. But most people uh, who are a little bit or even a lot addicted can stop using on their own uh, or can stop using without life-threatening withdrawal with the help of others. Um, and that is really the, the first and important step, because if we don't get out of that dopamine deficit state, we're not going to be able to employ our rational mind to see true cause and effect. Um, it's it's so interesting, you know, when I treat patients and they do that dopamine fast for four weeks, they'll often come back and say, wow, I, I don't even recognize who I was when I was engaging in those behaviors to get my drug, use my drug hide my drug use. It's it's a very 
scary and surreal feeling of, of like looking at a version of yourself that's not yourself. Um, but, but it's important to have that experience and realize, well, I got caught up in this and I really lost, lost my way. Um, and then the other reason it's important to start with that dopamine fast is because again, that allows us to reset our hedonic or our joy set point back to a healthy level so that we can enjoy other more modest rewards, like just meeting up with friends or, uh, you know, a healthy meal, or, um, you know, a, a sunrise or something like that. So we, by resetting those reward pathways, we also increase our access to uh, pleasure, including very modest pleasures and make ourselves more resilient in the face of pain. And I talk, um, in, you know, about sort of how that's done. So that's the first step, you know, is basically for first abstain. The second step is um, to engage with what I call self-binding strategies in order to maintain that hedonic set point. Now, for some uh, for some people, that will mean um, abstaining forever. But there are people who can go back to using their drug of choice in moderation with enormous effort, including these self-binding strategies. And self-binding strategies are both literal and metacognitive barriers that we put between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can press the pause button between desire and consumption. That can be something like not having potato chips in the house or not owning a smartphone or not having certain apps on my smartphone or um, categorical boundaries like only drinking on special occasions or only drinking a certain number of times per month. Or um, it can be um, you know, things like intermittent fasting or using time as a self-binding strategy. I'm saying I'm only going to, you know, play video games on Thursdays and Saturdays and Fridays. And I'm only going to play two hours a day and I'm only going to play with my friends. People can get super creative and they have to, and they have to figure out what works for them, especially if they're trying to moderate. There are some interesting experiments that George Koob, a neuroscientist and his colleagues have done where they exposed rats to cocaine, um, you know, where they could press a lever to get cocaine um, either in like an open access way that like six hours a day, um, or only for one hour per day. And what they found is that in the open access, uh, examples, the rats would increase or escalate their consumption of cocaine, um, over time. So they might, it might, they might just press the lever, like, let's say a couple times an hour with the open access one. But, you know, by the end of the week, it was like, 10 times an hour. And by the end of the month, it was, you know, 50 times in an hour. And then, they were, you know, then, then the organism dies. Um, but if they only had access one hour a day, they didn't increase their, the number of presses of the lever over time. So that's very interesting because what, what it suggests is that if we leave enough time in between use of our intoxicant or whatever it is, whether it's a substance or behavior, enough time for what I call those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and to reset those reward pathways, then, you know, potentially we can use our drug of choice without getting into that dopamine deficit state or that vortex of addiction. So it's things like that, um, that people, so that's, so first abstain, that's number one. Number two is use self-binding to maintain whether the goal is abstinence or moderation. And then number three is um, invite pain into your life. And that I think probably is, you know, the most controversial thing that I talk about possibly. Um, just, you know, my belief that we are really wired for 
suffering and we're, we're wired for friction in our lives, friction that we don't have now. And that in order to remain healthy because of this mismatch between our wiring and our modern ecosystem, we have to really simulate or recreate difficult things in our lives in order to be healthy. And so that can be things like, you know, intensive exercise or intensive creative pursuits that require sustained attention. Um, It can be, you know, ice cold water immersion, a lot of the things that people are, are doing now which actually, um, you know, upregulate dopamine levels by um, telling the body, oh, there's been an injury. Now we need to start to upregulate um, our our sort of feel-good hormones and, and neurotransmitters so that we end up, if we do that, resetting our joy set point to the side of pleasure rather than the side of pain. And that's what we want, right? Because then we have more access to pleasure um, and we're, we're more resilient in the face of, of painful stimuli. Wow. That's that's really amazing, and I really appreciate how you helped us understand more what dopamine fasting is, and it made me think a, a lot about our relationship with boredom in today's world, our relationship with, like you say, in Dopamine Nation, how boredom became, and also for me, and it, it becomes an, actual, an instant trigger into trying to be entertained, and how our technologies, my smartphone, all of those kind of prey on that notion that boredom is a bad thing when truly the good ideas and brilliant ideas come when we're bored. But our relationship with being, you know, contemplating or being meditating or, you know, just not using the phone first time in the morning is very confusing because, like you say, we've associated boredom in a negative way with pain without trying to use it for for our benefit and also the market forces like you argue they too prey on you know you shouldn't be bored all the time you have 24 access 24 7 access to all of the movies you want you have the screens uh open all the time for access for everything and also the gamification of everything becoming so so packed with amazing visuals and amazing colors and these storylines and these plots that all of a sudden made me think that all of us are pretty much everyone like you say who who owns a smartphone or who has access to entertainment are addicted so you know the dopamine fasting idea is really powerful for me personally in theory but in practice i fail to to do it especially with my phone mm. so first of all how can all of us who are using smartphones truly identify that we're addicted to them and how that idea in itself can provide insights to become better and you know improve with our relationship with them and secondly what are some of the steps practical steps we can use to you know improve our relationship with these technologies yeah, so I I really think that one of the best ways to realize that we become addicted is to abstain for a period of time. If you can't do four weeks, which most of, most of us can't because we're students or we have a career or something that requires us to be tied to the internet and tied to these devices, surely almost anybody can do 24 hours where they don't touch a screen or a phone or a device or or in any way interact with the internet or this technology. Um, although... I have seen people go into near full-blown panic attacks just at the prospect of not uh, being you know, online in some way for 20, even 
24 hours. So we really are a very addicted. But I, I really think that it's important to um, realize, uh, you know, how addictive we become and, and what our what we've essentially trained our brains to do, like little little monkeys, uh, you know, to basically so much of our mental real estate is now occupied by these devices. We've really projected ourselves onto the internet, which is now very much where we exist. And I think we really need to ask ourselves if, if, if that's a good thing. And if we really want that, um, do it together with a friend or, uh, you know, or a loved one or somebody who you can then plan to do in real life activities with, uh, but find some way to take a tech vacation or a digital Sabbath, take a break, a minimum, absolute minimum 24 hours and watch what your mind does. Cause it's very interesting. Your mind will make up all kinds of stories about why you have to check your phone, even though you committed uh, to not doing so for a period of time. And that's exactly what happens with people who are addicted to cocaine or cannabis or alcohol or you name it. Their mind comes up with all kinds of stories why I have to smoke now, why I have to drink now, why I really should have to call my dealer. It's the exact same phenomenon. If we're able to abstain long enough to kind of start to reset reward pathways and get out of that state of abject craving, it's a really good feeling and incredibly liberating because what's happened to us is that we are now in this constant state of jellyfish reactivity, where we're constantly reacting to stimuli, to very potent external stimuli, and never, you know, giving our, not giving our brains a break to sort of just settle down and, you know, find that kind of uh, default resting mode and sort of synergize and uh, find some sort of comfortable resting place without responding to these external stimuli. And of course, that the the reason it's so scary to do that is because it does feel, first of all, like FOMO, you know, what I'm missing out on. But people have struggled with FOMO since the beginning of time. That's not new. It's just made worse. I think human beings naturally sort of feel like, oh, you know, what, what, why am I here? What should I be doing? You know, oh, that person's doing more than I am. Should I be doing that thing? You know, what what is what is the meaning of my behavior and my purpose and all this? Those are old, old, old feelings that we are just basically evading by constantly stimulating ourselves. And so I think it's important to let ourselves settle into those big questions and just sort of tolerate them for a while and see what comes up. Because it's only when we're bored and resting our minds that really we're able to, you know follow a thought through long enough and maybe even, you know, come up with something new. And when I say something coming up, I'm not talking about like, you know, some grand new invention. I'm just talking about some, you know, insight about ourselves or some something that we, you know, you know that can inform our lives or a relationship, or maybe it's our conscience bubbling up telling us, well, you know, you really should apologize about that. You know, we, we don't even, uh, you know, hang around in our own minds long enough to listen to those sorts of messages, which are really important. Um, you know, they just sort of stay messages bobbing, bobbing around in the bottle in the ocean of, of our mind. And we need to like really stop long enough, grab those bottles, take those messages out and read them because they're important. And they're, you don't need anybody else or anything else to tell you what's in your own mind. In fact, nobody else can tell you what's in your own mind. So get, you know, get to know it, get it, get acquainted with it. And it's only possible to do that by being quiet 
um, and being, you know, either still or in steady motion, not listening to something else. This podcast, of course, is wonderful and people should listen to it, but even not listening to a podcast for a while, you know, and just going, okay, well, what's coming up in, in my own brain? Right. Like just going for a walk on the beach without headphones on, That's listening right. to the breeze, listening to all of the, you know, the environment itself. And I've, you made me think a lot because I feel that we still are having this conversation where our brain, even though it's, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that, you know, for so many years I've been using my phone, my brain circuitry has changed in a way that I don't even know how it has changed. And so I'm concerned that one of the biggest challenges we have is this balance, like you say, in dopamine nation that has became imba become imbalanced in terms of instant gratification that we need to start pursuing the next thing right now. I need to have it right now. And like I've mentioned before, the market forces are not really helping that at all. When I have my Amazon Prime and tomorrow I need my, my product to come, to arrive mm -hmm. just literally right now. So I was thinking on this question Uh, when you uh, shared with, the, with us and Dopamine Nation the marshmallow test. Right. And it's, I, I kept thinking, you know, how many, I would love to ask Dr. Lemke, how, what does she think in terms of, you know, if we would do the same test now with all of the access to technologies, how many people would fail that marshmallow test right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting idea. I wonder if uh, so. The marshmallow test for for people who don't know, it's an it's an old test that was done originally at Stanford, um, uh, and basically it was trying to to test children's ability to delay gratification. They were put in a room uh, with nothing else in the room. They sat at a chair at a table, and on a plate was one marshmallow. And they were told, if you can sit here for 15 minutes and not eat that marshmallow will give you two marshmallows. So by waiting, they would get a reward. And they essentially uh, you know, did all kinds of psychological measures of these kids. And then they saw who could wait and how long they could wait. And they compared it to the other psychological measures and they followed them prospectively and see, you know, they looked at things like, you know, who graduated high school, who went to college, who did well on their SATs back when SATs mattered. Um, And, you know, it clearly correlated with, well, first of all, the first thing that correlated was the the older, these were kids who were about between age four and six. And the older the child was, the, the longer they could wait uh, for that second marshmallow. Younger kids struggled with it more. But even within an age cohort, you saw, you know, variants, some kids who could wait and some kids who couldn't, some kids who couldn't wait, couldn't wait 30 seconds, some kids who almost made it. Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, the, the The children who could wait longer, um, you know, had other outcomes that suggested a strong prefrontal cortex and an ability to delay gratification. Like they, they had got more education, they did better on their tests. And I, I mean, there's been controversy whether or not you know that, that, that there are some. What is it really measuring? But nonetheless, it stood the test of time and and has become emblematic for you know, the differences that people um, experience just within the native population in terms of the ability to delay gratification. And your question about, you know, what would kids look like today? I mean, it probably honestly depends on, um, you know, where those kids were from. So one one of the things that, that 
you know, we see sociodemographically is that kids who are raised um, in higher income homes with patients with uh, parents with more education, especially here in Silicon Valley, are kids who are pretty well insulated to technology. They go to the Waldorf schools where they don't have any computers at all. Why? Because their parents are the tech giants who invented this stuff and they know how addictive, addictive it is, right? And they don't want their kids exposed to it. But then you have a whole lot of people who don't have very much education um, who who think that, oh, my kid needs to be scientifically literate. I'm going to give them an iPad when they're three. Um, you know, and, and also we were sort of sold this as a bill of goods that if we if we want our kids to be, you know, the the, the giants of industry of tomorrow, we need to get everybody on a computer. And I think what's become clear now is that um, that's not a good thing for education. It's not a good thing for kids. It does decrease their attention span and their ability to focus. And so kids who are exposed to a lot of digital devices, especially, you know, uh, unfettered access to the internet, probably are kids who would um, have a harder time waiting for that second marshmallow. Wow. Yeah. And it's really interesting because like, like I mentioned before, it's, Undoubtedly, the truth that for so many years I've been using my phone, it has changed my circuitry. I can't imagine a four-year-old using the iPad and those games, what is going on in their brains. And it just it becomes another completely different conversation is how will our society become shaped after this, you know, the use of 20, 30, 80 years of these technologies. And like you say before, the metaverse, you know, we're constantly being told to create our avatars in the internet and, you know, put them a cute outfit and all of them and identifying ourselves with them rather than us. It's going to be a really weird, weird time. And I want to get into, you know, another dangerous topic, which is, you know, prescription drugs. And it made me think a lot. One of the most controversial ideas that I read on your book is how some of these psychotropic medications have become a means of social control, how they're being prescribed mostly for the poor, unemployed and disenfranchised, quote unquote, like you say, in dopamine nation. And that's something I've never, never heard before. And I would love to for you to expand on that idea of, you know, how these psychotropic medications became something that would be sold to people with lower resources. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess at, at to begin, I would just say that I, I, I do believe that psychotropics are overprescribed um, in the United States, uh, that, that doctors in general don't appreciate the risks and overestimate the benefits. Um, and in most people, you know, many of these psychotropic drugs are, are really just only a little bit better than placebo or a sugar pill. In many, in many people, they don't work at all, and they do have significant side effects. Some of them are highly addictive. Um and what is it's really disturbing again is if you look at the 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 epidemiologic studies uh which can be based on you know um sort of surveying people but also some interesting new methods of study for example looking at wastewater or fecal matter chemical contaminants uh by zip code right what you what you see uh whether you look at it by survey methods or you know large data sets um that are analyzed anonymously or studies of uh, waste matter, what you see again and again is that we are prescribing the most psychotropics, whether it's antidepressants, anxiolytics, antipsychotics, 
uh, stimulants, opioids, you name it, that uh, the the kind of poor and undereducated and disenfranchised are more likely to be uh, prescribed those in higher volume at higher doses, which is very concerning um, because what it says is that, first of all, our medical infrastructure uh, is designed to prescribe pills um, because it's fast and it's easy and it's lucrative. Um, and we, we do know that, you know, our healthcare system has essentially been co-opted in many ways by big business and big pharma. Um, but, but it also says that we are selectively not offering poorer people, uh, the kinds of, uh, non-pharmacologic strategies that, um, wealthier people have access to, like individual and group psychotherapy or, uh, summer camps or other exposure to nature or, uh, you know, uh, gym memberships or personal coaches or physical trainers or, or, you know, any number of things that uh, we know can improve mental health without a pill. Wow. I'm, another question I had was, I keep thinking on the emergence of, you know, Adderall, all of these prescription medicines and I keep thinking that, you know, my naive mind, my my innocent mind keeps g giving them the benefit of the doubt. You know, it was a breakthrough drug and all of a sudden it became exacerbated by the profits that were possible in terms of these people's minds. So where do you think that breakthrough moment happened when these prescription medicines began as something useful and now it seems that they're beginning to be used for profitable purposes? Um, well, I mean, pretty, pretty much as soon as, you know, the, the, the pharma industry, uh, entered the market, um, I mean, which really goes back hundreds of years. Um, you know, so if you look at, for example, um, Bayer aspirin in the late 1800s, they announced the, uh, the creation of a brand new drug that was going to solve the, the morphine epidemic. And they, they called it heroish, which is German for heroic. And they put it on the market uh, right next to Bayer aspirin uh, and was recommended for, uh, you know, babies with coughs and, and, and Victorian housewives with headaches and you name it. Well, heroish was heroin. Um, and it very quickly, uh, you know, led to the narcomania of the early 1900s and then became illegal um, in the first quarter century of the 1900s. So, you know that that's almost as old as time you know the the, the way that uh, that drugs in one form or another are um sold promoted hawked as some kind of miracle cure uh without evidence to support it without an appreciation of, of the risks um but i think today you know what we have is such a an efficient pharmaceutical industry the technology has also allowed for ever more potent forms of these pharmacologic products. Our supply chain, you know, our global supply chain means that they can be shipped to every corner of the world, whether they're legal or illegal. And that's what's really changed things. It's the it's the sheer quantity, potency, and access that we have to this uh, really potentially dangerous pharmacopoeia. Uh, that's altered, you know, the lives that we live today. I do want to add, however, that, um, I mean, I'm very grateful, uh, that these medications exist, that I do think in, in, in some instances when used safely and mostly short term, they can be life saving. So it's, again, it's not that it's all bad, but it's just, um, 
you know, the, the sort of just the casualness with which people now ingest things that they think are medicine. I, I recently traveled to um, Arizona and I got into, um, I was met by a driver who, um, you know, smelled like cannabis and his car smelled like cannabis. And that, that was okay. Um, it was very nice, but in the course of our drive together, he told me about his microdosing regimen um, and his psychedelics that he uses, you know, daily. He and he has little capsules that he gets from Amazon. And he puts them in there and he doses them in the morning, doses them at night. I mean, what I found frightening about that was ju- just like there's no evidence to support that, and yet he, he all on all on his own, without a doctor or, or without evidence just sort of the internet, he's now putting these chemicals in his body without, you know, really appreciating whether or not they work and whether or not and how they might be harmful. So I think that that's, that's the concern. It's like, it's just gone too far. Yeah. And like you say, you know, we, we, Try, tend to consumer information on social media and on retweets and on viewership other than professional uh, review of uh, science. So another question that I have is, which is really, really striking, is how you argue that probably our domination has lessened our ability to experience deeper emotions, you know, like love and and, you know, other deep emotions, excitement, empathy, compassion, and other aspects of our humanity. And that's one of, you know, the biggest concerns in terms of these psychotropic drugs that I that I keep thinking on, you know. So could you care and expand on why do you believe, you know, maybe we're lacking this, another huge aspect of our humanity, deeper emotions? Yeah. So, I mean, this is mainly, you know, the things like the SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Selexa, they can be really great antidepressants and, and anti-anxiety medicines. But um, over, you know, more than two decades of practice, I, I've certainly seen um, enough patients now who have described that, yes, it's made me less anxious and depressed, but now I don't care about anything. Um, you know, my, my mother died and I don't really feel sad. Um, I used to cry it you know, Olympics commercials. And now I just, I don't, that nothing moves me anymore. And so I think there's that kind of dampening down, which in an acute cri- psychological crisis can be good if we're, you know, emotionally incontinent and therefore not able to function. But I'm not sure for the long term we want to, you know, go through life not having these deeper feelings and not being able to respond, you know, in this way. It's just that we're we're generally taught to believe that if we're experiencing deep suffering, then we're sick and something's wrong with us. Even the DSM has reclassified grief that lasts too long as a mental disorder, which I just find to be completely bizarre. Um, so, so there's like, there's no room anymore in our culture to just be sad, um, which is really unfortunate because uh, I think most of us experience sadness quite often. And it would be nice if there could be uh, a narrative, an acceptable narrative and a community that could come together around uh, those uh, you know, difficult experiences without labeling them as, as sick and prescribing a pill for them. Yeah. And like you, you touch now on, on labels and, 
I had a couple of friends and close relatives who, who knew I was going to interview you and they really appreciate your work. So shout out to them. And also they want me to say thank you for your work. Oh, so, thank you. Dr. Lemke, one of the questions was labels. And uh, my friend had a question. He said that what happens when someone is labeled as an addictive, as a, as a depressed, as an anxious person, as those labels and how those that transfer into the behavior set people engaging. If I'm, I think of myself as depressed, what happens with that? Yeah, so I think it's a real, it's a, it's a great question and it's very much a double-edged sword. On the one hand, by diseaseifying these experiences and behaviors, we also de-shame them. And that can be really important to help people get out of those behaviors and either go seek help or just feel less shame around them. And so uh, feel more motivated to mobilize uh, to change their lives. On the other hand, uh, what can happen is that those labels can become interwoven as part of our identity that we then can't move past. I've had a very interesting experience in the past 15 years. Well, I'll go, I'll go to high schools and I'll, you know, meet with a small group of kids after a talk. And the kids will introduce themselves with their diagnoses. They'll say, oh, I'm, I'm Mary and I have ADHD or I'm Bob and I have OCD and depression. And I mean, I just find that on the one hand, well, I guess we're no longer stigmatizing those disorders, but on the other hand, really that's, that's who you are. You know, your, your mental health disorder, that seems to, to me to be not, uh, not in a positive direction. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. And one, that's one of the biggest concerns people have now when it comes to seeking mental health, you know, some they being labeled as something and that label becoming their identity. So what are some of the ways, Dr. Lemke, you think our mental uh, mental health institutions can improve in these situations and how can they use your research, your work in terms of actually improving our interventions with people who experience it? Yeah, thanks. Well, I, I thank you for asking that. So this is, I, this is, I sort of feel, I try to kind of always tampen it down because I get real passionate about this. But um, I wish that more mental health care providers would normalize suffering and and just allow people to be sad or, or you know, or feel regret or uh, feel despair and really just, you know, talk through that. And of course, um, also, I wish that mental health care providers were more comfortable discussing spiritual pathways and how faith may be one of the best ways to uh, endure suffering in this life of ours. The other thing that probably is top of my agenda now, just because it's completely co-opted mental health care treatment, is I really wish that mental health care providers would stop looking for past trauma that doesn't exist. Because we're so now focused on trauma as the cause of mental health disorders that a lot of people end up spending time with therapists and psychiatrists looking for trauma in their lives that didn't even really happen or is so minor that it could not possibly account for what they're going on in their own, in their lives now, or even if it did happen, even if they did have considerable trauma, you know, you don't want to get like circle the drain of that trauma for the rest of your life. You have to metabolize it and then move on. And one of the best ways to do that is to talk about, you know, what we ourselves has, have contributed uh, to our negative life circumstances and what we ourselves can do to change that because we can't really control other people, but we can at least, you know, have some inkling of, of what we can do to change our lives. So I wish there were more of that kind of talk. 
because I see what see happening is that people get very caught up in trying to find the traumatic event that explains, you know, their adult so-called psychopathology. And that, that can often lead to like family members being alienated from each other, people distancing themselves from the very support network that allows them, you know, to uh, stay connected with other humans. So it's, it's potentially really pernicious. Yeah. Thank you for, for your answer. And Dr. Lemke, I'm being mindful. I know we, we have to wrap up. I hope that we have another chance in the future because, like I said, I have like almost eight pages worth of questions for you. And I know that our listeners will also appreciate, you know, sending their questions for future conversations. Thank you for joining me. There's a lot to unpack here. I'm going to really listen it a lot, a lot of times. And I will also add all of the links to your book, to your information in the conversation. But really, I appreciate you joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. Those are great questions. Thanks for your engagement and curiosity. And uh, yeah, for spreading the word. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.